This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I am Jethro Jones coming to you from Spokane, Washington. I am the author of the book, School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You, and a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, administrators, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, cyber safety, and today, having a conscience. (laughs) Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. For more information or to donate to our work, please visit centerforcyberethics.org. The Cybertraps podcast is a production of the Center for Cyberethics, an independent, nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyber ethics as a positive social force through research, curricula development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. Greetings there, Jethro. Happy Thursday to you, Fred. It is a good Thursday, and I'm looking forward to our uh, collection of guests today. Yes. Let me tell you, first on deck, we have Richard Schell, who is a global thought leader and senior faculty member at one of the world's leading business schools, the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. He serves as the chair of Wharton's Legal Studies and Business Ethics Department, the largest department of its kind in the world. He is also the author of the book, The Conscience Code, Lead With Your Values, Advance Your Career, which addresses an increasingly urgent problem in today's workplace, standing up for core values such as honesty, fairness, personal dignity, and justice when the pressure is on to look the other way. Richard, welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. Hey, wonderful to be Jethro, Fred. Really appreciate you having me. Thank you. Well, we're- honor. Thank you. Yeah, we're very excited to talk with you also, and thank you for, for taking the time. 
as I mentioned before, Fred and I just got back from the PPI conference, the Professional Practices Institute conference in Oklahoma, and talked with investigators and people who determine whether or not educators keep their licenses and heard some stories, uh, learned some best practices. Fred gave a great presentation there. And we see this problem of people not being able to stand up for their core values when they really should. What is it that prevents us from doing that first and foremost? Well, it's not that it's not that you're a bad person. That's the first thing to get past. I think uh, some people think, well, people who everybody who does a bad thing is a bad person. And uh, I think that's wrong. I think the most important factor that leads people down the wrong path are misconstrued or perverse incentives. They've been asked to accomplish a goal and they've internalized it in some way that they've distorted because they've come to the conclusion that only the goal matters and the way you get to the goal is irrelevant. Mm. And so they just discard the kinds of values they would have at home if their child was you know, saying, should I cheat on an exam? They would say, no, you shouldn't cheat on the exam. But then they go to work and uh, a problem comes up where they have a very strong deadline. They have a, their compensation is pinned to some metric and they find themselves slipping ethically to try to get that goal accomplished because it's it's in sight and uh, and then they they may regret it but once they've committed some sort of wrong the next thing that they do is cover up and then they're guilty of two mis- misdeeds the, the doing of it and the covering up of it and from there it's all downhill so I think incentives is the first thing. And I think the second thing is uh, rationalizations. People have a tendency. I read a very interesting article recently in a social psych journal, and it was about self-esteem. And the article made the point that most people anchor their self-esteem in one of two categories. The first is their competence. So you take pride in being a great teacher or being a great archer or being a great podcaster and you're good at it and you establish (laughs) your self-esteem in there. And the second is their moral identity. And that means that they think they're a good person fundamentally. And what tends to happen is when you attempted to do something that compromises your moral identity, and that could be something where you cut a corner and don't exercise your full competence. So you've really, you've really injured your own standard of excellence. And that has a moral component. But what happens is as soon as you do that, your mind starts rationalizing that it didn't happen. It wasn't a very big deal. You were forced to it. You had no choice. Everybody does it. Uh, there's just a, a barrage of rationalizations to protect your moral identity because that's so important to your ability to function. If you if you have to admit a moral mistake, it's a depressing moment, and so, and we we will do a lot to avoid that. And so rationalizations are the second enemy. That's that's interesting. So if if I'm hearing you correctly, Richard, there's two. Well, I'm sure there's more, but the two main forces that people are grappling with in these situations are the external forces that validate who they are within a given institution and the internal superstructure 
that maintains their moral code. And I think both of those deserve examination, but given some of the work that Jethro and I have done and some of the conversation we've had, I'm particularly interested in how we strengthen people's resistance to the kinds of external forces you're talking about, the metrics. You know, for instance, No Child Left Behind in the school community was a very hard driving metric that forced people to cut a lot of corners. Um, before we got started, we mentioned the cheating scandal down in Atlanta. So what, what, what are your thoughts in terms of how we either change those incentives or strengthen people to resist them? Yeah, it's very, very difficult to do. And, and it's really, really important. Um, I think the, the, the first way to conceptualize it is to uh, think about it as a cultural phenomenon. So what's happening is these incentives are creating a toxic culture. And people don't identify it as toxic because it doesn't, you don't feel like you're being bullied by a person. Uh, where it's really easy to know you're in a toxic culture when your principal or your boss is a bully and is screaming at you. But when the incentives and goals are screaming at you, it's the same thing. And I think it's really important to identify that kind of perversity as a toxic culture. It helps because if you label it as something wrong, then you'll stand to the right side of it. It's when you're ambiguous about, oh, well, is this me or is it it or what is it? I think, and that's why I call my book The Conscience Code, because I think most people know right from wrong. And what happens is they get knocked off their center of gravity morally by incentives or by pressures that come from above authority or peers. And, and then they, their conscience becomes very hard to hear. And so I think the most important thing, and, and I, re, I reiterate this over and over, has to do with identity. You have to think of yourself first and foremost, not as a teacher, not as a principal, not as a, a school board member, but as a person of conscience. Someone who brings their conscience to work and doesn't just drop it at the you know, at the mailbox on the commute. And if you ask yourself, what would a person of conscience do faced with this problem? It frames the problem in a way that puts the moral problem first. And the person of conscience faced with a no child left behind impossibility of performance would immediately put a stake in the ground and say, no, okay, whatever's going on here, I'm not going to break I'm not going to misbehave in a way that I can't live with myself. Then the problem-solving mechanism kicks in and say, well, okay, how am I going to rally people, discover others who feel as I do, have uh, open discussion about the problem so that we can brainstorm ways to do this that don't violate our values? And if in the end, it's a rock and a hard place, you either have to violate your values or you have to quit, then you quit. And you quit, of course, as carefully as possible with as many with as many pontoon boats around you as possible. You know, I, this is a last resort. But I do think at the end of the day, your values are what you're willing to pay for them. And in a test, they're only tested when these moments of crisis come. Otherwise, we, we, we've arranged our lives so that our moral equilibrium is stable. But here comes this, this, this unsettling challenge and crisis. Now you have to say, okay, how am I gonna meet that 
where I understand that there may be a price to pay for keeping my conscience. And I've already decided, I've committed to being a person of conscience. So there are some things that are non-negotiable. And, uh, you know, I teach negotiation. And one of the little known facts about negotiation is that when people get to impasse, they get more creative. And so impasse, which is often thought of as a bad thing. Oh, we got to no deal. That's terrible. Actually, getting to an impasse can be a very good thing. And I think when it comes to values conflicts, saying here and no further to the people that you have to discuss with actually engages problems. If we can't go further this way, where else can we go? What's another path out of the woods? And that then I think offers the hope that you can navigate successfully and uh, sleep well at night. Yeah. So Richard, I'd like to ask about that. If you can't live by your values, then you need to quit. I mean, that's a pretty stark difference. Either you live by your values, you quit. And I think people philosophically can get on board with that. But part of the challenge with that is that if you quit, then that may not solve the problem or make it go away. There could be power in you staying and continuing to fight for the change that needs to happen uh, without quitting. And so, oh, yeah. How, yeah, how, yeah, how do you how do you balance those two ideas? Talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, basically, the, my whole book is about how to stand and fight instead of cutting and running. And so I said that only I, I sort of ran the movie all the way to the end. And said, well, you know, if, if it's if it's either or and there's you've exhausted all the other possibilities, then I think you have to be willing to quit. Now, that doesn't mean that you actually will have to. It just means and a lot of good has been done in this world when people sat in someone's office and said, if we, you know, I'll be forced to resign if we can't talk about this, if we can't figure it away. And the other person goes, wow, I didn't know you felt that strongly about it. Let's try to solve the problem. Yeah, that so, that piece is really key because saying I'm going to be forced to resign because of this, I, I think is really powerful. And the reason why I'm, I'm pushing on this piece is that so many educators have said to me, my principal said I need to do it. So I don't really have a choice. I just have to go along with it. My superintendent said we have to do it. I don't have a choice. It's a state test. We can't do anything about it. And that seems so fatalistic to me, like you're giving up the things that matter to when yeah. you say that. Well, the, the, in the book, I, I analyzed five different kinds of pressures people get put under, peer pressure, authority pressure, the pressure of incentives we already talked about, the pressure that you may feel as a result of your role, because uh, sometimes people are in roles that get these pressure points. But the hardest one is the last one, and that's the pressure that comes from systems. And when you've got a legislative mandate or uh, an organization that's corrupt or it's a global bribery, you know, you're at a border and everybody takes bribes and you can't get through the border unless you take a give a bribe. That's a system pressure. And system pressures are the hardest because they don't lend themselves to change. They, they were embedded. So that doesn't mean that you pay a bribe or you you know, go along with the system, that is simply the signal that the, that the revolution is what has to happen, not the 
if the like, I'm, as soon as I point out that this is immoral, the other person is going to go, oh, I, I should have remembered. I'm sorry. Thank you for pointing that out to me. Because <laughs> that happens sometimes. People forget. Yeah. People get lost. And if when, when you're the person of conscience in the room, and you say, you know, aren't we forgetting our values here? And, and other people go, oh, yeah, actually we are, you know, and now what to do? But when you're in a corrupt system or a system that's perverse, you know, the incentives are perverse, then just saying that, everybody just shrugs and goes, it's the system. Yeah. Uh, but every well, system got changed. Every system has been improved by people taking action, incremental, one coalition at a time to persuade other people that there's a better way. And again, sometimes the leaders in those system uh, change initiatives have some sacrifices that they have to make to point out the values are as important as they are, but it doesn't have to work out that way. You just have to have that kind of commitment. This is this is fascinating stuff, Richard, and I, 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 I'm really excited to have a chance to talk with you about this because I think what you're latching onto are some of the fundamental questions we're looking at as a society today. And we see it manifesting in all of these different organizations. And one of the things that strikes me, I'd love to get your thoughts on this, is that the kind of implementation of a conscience code, to use your great phrase, is it's easier to do in a peer group, for instance, like a school, where, yes, you do have some hierarchical order, but at least in terms of the communication among educators, that kind of reminder about core values and so forth. What's an example of the labor issue that you have in mind? Well, I'm thinking specifically that you're starting to see more job actions on the part of salaried employees and so forth, um, where they're actually trying to say, no, I won't work for X number of dollars per hour, but that given the pandemic and given the things that people have gone through, they have a moral right to better compensation. Yeah. So maybe maybe a little off the beam, but I think that there's some spillover. Yeah. No, I, I would like to point out, though, a distinction that's buried in that question, because mm. I teach negotiation, I teach persuasion, and I teach ethics. And when people are negotiating their interests, it's different than when they are arguing over their beliefs. And when it's a question of what the fair wage ought to be, it's usually a question of interest because that means, and, and you can identify it because an interest can be traded off. Okay, we'll take a little less of that if you'll give us a little more of this. And now that's a kind of negotiation over interest. That doesn't make it easy, but it's it's got moving parts. When people get migrated to arguing about beliefs, now it becomes, and values are beliefs. You know, the vaccine question is, for some people, a belief. And I was just going to go there, yeah. And yeah. people, and, and it's interesting to see the uh, unsuccessful attempts to get people to take the vaccine using incentives. Uh-huh. Because, you know, imagine being told, um, we'll, we'll pay you if you'll change your belief in God. No, no, no. That That's not only... Uh, wrong, it makes me want to believe in God even more because you think I'm flexible in my beliefs that you could bribe me to give them up. 
And that's what happens when you start um, mixing up incentives and beliefs. If you want to persuade someone to change a belief, you have to give them lots of space. You have to demonstrate things for them that they have time to internalize and compare with their view of the world. You have to surround them with people who have, that they trust, that they have some reason to believe, who believe as you do, but give them a chance to hear from those people. And it's not about incentives. There's a wonderful story. I don't know if we have time for this, but I'll do a quick version of it. George Washington in, in the Revolutionary War had a moment at the Battle of Princeton when he was about to lose his army. The whole army was going to go off payroll on January 1st. And he needed to re-enlist because it was 1776. You know, <laughs> he wasn't there yet. And so Alexander Hamilton said, I got an idea. We'll give them a bonus if they'll stay on after January 1. And so they they spelled out the bonus and then they rolled the drums and said, everybody who wants to step up and get the bonus and stay on with General Washington after January 1, take a step forward. They rolled the drums. No one stepped forward. They all were tired. They wanted to go home. They believed that, that they'd done their duty. And General Washington, seeing that this was about to happen, and that Hamilton had totally misjudged the moment, rode up on his white horse to the front of the troops and gave this amazing, stirring speech about how, sacrifice, how many sacrifices they'd made and how important they were and how the nation would forever be grateful to them if they would stay just another two months. And they rolled the drums again. A couple of people stepped up. The whole army stepped up. Mm. And they stayed with him for six more years. He got them to say yes to two months, and he led them for six more years. So he appealed to their sense of purpose. And that's how you move people who have a belief. So I think it's really important when you talk about these unions and, and job actions and, and wage problems, they are usually interest-based disputes. And that means you've got some, I'll give you this if you'll give me that. Sometimes when the wage is insultingly low or when it's discriminatory between women and men or between people of color and people who are in a majority group, it becomes an issue of belief because people are so outraged by the standard that's being used that it's not about the money anymore. And then you got to switch channels. You're not going to go in there and say, well, if we give you another dollar, you know, what do you say? Uh, you're going to have to go in there and say, we have some information about this fairness thing we'd like to share that is the basis for our belief that it's fair. And then we'd like to hear from you about the information that's the basis for your belief. And let's see if we can counsel together to come to an understanding of a new value about fairness. That's a whole different kind of conversation. That's that's a really useful explanation, Richard. I appreciate that. I, I I do see clearly what you're getting at. Let's shift gears a little bit to a a topic I think that both Jethro and I have grappled with with various guests, which is this idea of, if you will, the moral scaffolding that we each carry with us, and how that plays into the development and maintenance of a conscience code. And has your work on your book given you any concerns that that scaffolding is weakening in general, or are there things we should be doing as a society to strengthen it within individuals? Uh, I think I think it's I think it that the two main sources, well, three main sources for values, are family, religion, or spiritual 
community, spiritual tradition and education. And I think teachers sometimes forget that actually they're one of the largest transmitters of the sense of social value and connection that is in the mix when it comes to our culture. And of course, it's now the flashpoint where the outside forces are clashing over what those values ought to be in the classroom. And we all lament that and we say, oh, you know, that's terrible. The teachers are in a pincer, they're caught in the middle. You know, what, what are we, it's not fair. We shouldn't make them do that. Actually, they've been doing that since Socrates had students in Athens and Aristotle disagreed with them and started his own academy, you know, uh, and then Plato disagreed with, you know, the, people start their own schools because they don't like the values of the school that their kids were sent to in the first place. Uh, so so it's a it's a constant dialogue. And I don't think teachers should be. I don't, I sympathize with teachers because of the passions and the convictions with which people are bringing these disputes to school boards and to the classroom. But I think as a matter of vocation, it's part of the deal. And it's only been because you, they've had a little time off on the values <laughs> conflict that they are sensing this, whoa, tsunami coming at them. But if you look at education, I mean, in the end, it's people start charter schools because they have values that are different. People start religious schools because they have values that are different. The reason schools are so important to us is the education on competence and the education on moral identity. And the trick, the tricky part is in a democracy and a public school, you have a kind of civic religion that centers on the constitution and on rights and on dialogue against free speech and 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 but you know that's what that's what it is and i think that you delineate the parts of the of the spiritual moral code that you can talk about in a classroom in a public school and separate it from that which ought to be discussed more with the family and with the tradition of spiritual practice that a family may come from and you know, at the end of the day, as the family disintegrates, as the schools become centers of chaos and conflict, as religion sort of devolves, it was a really interesting article today. There's a huge number of evangelicals, many more evangelicals now than there were even 10 years ago by a big percentage, but many of them don't go to church. They're evangelicals because they have political alliances that they identify with in the, in the sort of culturally conservative side of the Republican Party. And they're identifying as evangelicals more because those values from that end of the Republican Party resonate with them than they are because they have some born again spiritual experience, which is usually the, the foundation for an evangelical community. So you see these things getting mixed up in a way that's unique now. This moral and civic religion is now beginning to sort of take on a religious tone that's usually affiliated with what happens uh, one day a week uh, or every morning at seven or whatever it is that people do to practice their religion. So it's tough, it's tough. But I still think that your conscience, and, and I, I believe people who have beliefs, one set of beliefs about abortion or another set of beliefs about abortion, they can both be people of conscience. They can both believe in a deep and meaningful and an important way uh, that their values are core to who they are. 
and be called to stand at some sacrifice to their own self-interest, to stand up for those. I think we should respect people like that. I don't think we should call them anything other than people of conscience. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that point right there at the end, especially because this is something that I've struggled a lot with, that if you are a teacher in a school, I don't believe that it's your job to impart your values to the kids that are there. It's your job to help them identify their own values. And those are two very different things. And, you know, we've talked about different people who have tried to instill their values on students in an inappropriate way of things that you're not supposed to do as a teacher. And, and I think that that, that issue of someone being a person of conscience is really the right place to start. And to, if you are doing something or believe something because everybody else does, that's not being a person of conscience. But if you're doing something or saying something or believing something because you believe that's the right thing, then even if we disagree, we can still have conversations and find some way to come to an agreement about something. Um, even if we totally have completely conflicting views that are still core beliefs that we hold very closely. Yeah. I, 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 back, you know, I think we're trying to find that place again in our civic culture, especially in politics, where we can agree to disagree about our beliefs and negotiate our interests and come to an agreement on how many taxes to pay for what and where we have d disagreements that go to these cultural values. That's when we get to vote. Yeah. That's, you know, Richard, and that's, you know, that's why it works, you know, and, and if we lose, if, you know, I think each side has to realize, Hey, you're going to win some, you're going to lose some. There's going to be periods of time when you don't control the legislative process or the executive branch. There are going to be times when you do, and your job is to persuade and recognize that people don't all have the same beliefs as you. It, it, it will, we'll end with this. Cause I think that this is just such a fascinating conversation and, and Jethro and I, I talk about this quite a bit. The, the the thing we probably don't have time to unpack, Richard, as much as we might like, is the sometimes competing aspects of conscience, right? So, for instance, in the kind of example that Jethro is using, which I think he's absolutely right, that that there are there is factual information to be delivered in a classroom, but not necessarily a teacher's individual beliefs. But at the same time, I've run across in my research tons of teachers who have said things in the classroom that were inappropriate, but they felt they were acting on their conscience to say whatever it was. You know, wherever you are on the political spectrum, they felt that was an act of conscience for them. So one of the challenges I think I see in, in some of the things you're, you're discussing is that there can be competing aspects of conscience for an individual. Yeah. And I, I guess that's, you know, and you're absolutely right. And I'm, I'm a professor. I'm, I'm not in the business. I'm a chair of the department. When one of my professors <laughs> starts, you know, preaching a gospel of something they believe in to my, you know, to the students, I think they're off. They've, they need to be counseled and because they're exercising power. You know, right. and, and and that's that's you know that's that's just unfair to the students. The students don't have a chance when the person in the power seat is dictating terms that ought to be belief points. But I move then from I'm, I have a standard move when this is you know you sort of hit that point, and you're absolutely right. You you move from person of conscience about the underlying values and move to process. 
So what is the right process for a person of conscience to talk about their beliefs in what for before what audience in what context and not compromise their beliefs, but they do it in an appropriate way that's fair to everybody in the context of the process that people think is the way we need to work in order to get along. And so I think, you know, your teacher that's misbehaving in that way needs to be counseled on process so that they don't recognize no one's trying to take their beliefs away. They're just trying to counsel them on the process and the place where those beliefs can be front and center and other times when they shouldn't be. So, uh, but it's an immense topic. You're absolutely right. It really is, Richard. And we could have, I think, a much longer conversation, but I will tell you that there are many, many teachers who need to hear what you just said, because I think that would make a big difference in their careers. So just to remind people, we strongly recommend that people go out and take a look at and purchase a copy of The Conscience Code. Uh, Richard would like to thank you for coming on and discussing it with us. Oh, we really stimulating conversation. I really appreciate both of you having me. Thank you very much. Now, it's been a pleasure. That wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will conscientiously continue our <laughs> coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. We hope you've enjoyed the show. And if you would love, if you would like to reach out to us with topic suggestions or guest ideas, we would love that. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you must have loved this show. And if that's the case, please leave us a five-star rating and review in your podcast player of choice. And we'll see you on Monday for our live show. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.